Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nitt with Hask. Today we're going to continue our webinar series on the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's topic will be returning to work safely amid the COVID-19 pandemic. So without further ado, let's join our moderator, Dr. Tommy Heisler. Well, good afternoon. Very happy to be with everybody on this webinar today. We appreciate the Charlotte Regional Safety and Health Conference for reaching out to us and inviting this panel to discuss returning to work safely amid this COVID-19 pandemic. So again, glad everybody is on. It looks like we're, we just tipped over 200 attendees joining the call, so welcome. Hopefully you will uh, enjoy the conversation today, get something out of it, and we always enjoy putting these on um, uh, from our side, so we hope you enjoy it as well. To ask questions during this webinar, uh, you can't talk. If you're talking, we cannot hear you. And that's on purpose, so we don't have 210 attendees trying to talk all at one time. So there is a, uh, a questions pop-up box that you can access on your desktop or on the system that you're using. And you just type in a question, and we are going to see that question. And as we get around to those questions and answers, we will ask that question out loud. The panel will tr hopefully try to answer that question for you. So we'll try to get through as many questions as we can. We depend on your questions to keep, keep this webinar lively and interactive. Uh, we certainly don't want to just sit here and, and read off of a PowerPoint. So we're going to start off by giving some quick data, some quick facts, some quick updates on the COVID-19 pandemic. But for the majority of this session, we want to open it up for Q&A. So please feel free to type, ask, to start typing those questions in as soon as you uh, can think of them. You can start now and they'll be compiling and we'll get to them as soon as we can. I'm not gonna introduce everybody on our panel up front. I think I'll just ask everybody to introduce themselves as their slide deck comes up. I'm Dr. Tommy Heisler, I'm the moderator today. I work at the Health and Safety Council here in Houston, Texas. Uh, very honored to be a part of this uh, prestigious panel we have from the UT School of Public Health. We've been doing these sessions for many, many months during this pandemic. I think last time we counted, we've reached over 2000 attendees collectively on these webinars that we've given out. So again, we're happy to be here and without further ado, I am going to kick it over to Dr. George Delclos. Uh, thank you, Tommy. I think many of y'all already know me, but just in case, I'm George Delclos. I'm a faculty member at the School of Public Health at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, or UT Health as we call it. And uh, I'm also a clinician and over the employee health program here for the university. So um, my part in this presentation is really to provide a little bit of an overview of recent data and more importantly, um, what kind of indicators we can use to track uh, how the COVID epidemic is affecting us both nationally as well as locally. So, uh, and a lot of this is not news, I admit it, because we've all been sort of seeing the same message over and over again for the last several days on the, on the news. Uh, but uh, you know that uh, right now the country is not in a good spot. Cases uh, have been increasing uh, dramatically. Um, when you start having 180,000 cases in one day, you know that, that, that we're in trouble. 
the curve here that uh, I got from the New York Times, which uh, is a pretty reliable source, uh, was updated just yesterday, shows that uh, you know ever since this started back in February, March, we've had waves of the disease. And there are a few important take-home points from this slide. The first is that we've had about three waves. The second is that between waves, we never really got back down to zero. Uh, and the third is that the waves, each wave has brought with it an increasing number of cases and rate of appearance of new cases. To the point that in this slide, if you look far over the right, which is where we are now, the ascent, the line of ascent of increases in cases is near vertical. That's not good. Um, that rep What we're seeing now is that over the last two weeks, there's been an 81% increase uh, in number of cases. Um, we have done a good job as a country in general of um, reducing mortality due to uh, COVID cases that wind up being hospitalized. A lot of that has to do with the knowledge that we've gained compared to the first months where we were sort of flying a little bit by the seat of our pants. But that doesn't mean that in absolute numbers, when you have these sheer large numbers of cases in the, in, in the country, that, you're, that that's not going to result in large numbers of deaths. Of course, it will. And so there's been a close to 40% increase in the absolute number of deaths, even though the percent of deaths uh, over the total of, of, of COVID cases remains low. And I think that is a tribute to our frontline healthcare workers and to their dedication at caring for patients and the, to, to their ability to learn from the, uh, the data that's accumulating from past mistakes and from um, knowing what works and what doesn't work. Hospitalizations, of course, uh, are going up. And remember, and this is quoted a lot in the, in, the, uh, in the press, that when cases start increasing in the community, you expect that within about a two-week period of time, you're going to see the hospitalizations start increasing. And within about a 10-day to two-week period after the hospitalizations start increasing, you're going to see the deaths start increasing. And that is exactly what we are seeing. Next slide, please. However, those are average numbers for the country. Um, there is still a lot of variability in the distribution of this uh, more recent surge in cases. Um, what the map shows here is um, hotspots. Red is hotter than uh, orange or yellow, and it's done by population density rather than blocking out entire counties, um, which makes for a much redder map. But I think this one is more reliable because it relates to the density of population. And you see basically that um, there's red almost everywhere in, in, some, in, in one place or another. Uh, you see less in the West because they're less densely populated, but it's still red in there. So where the people are, the cases are. And, and this is important because in contrast to the surges that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, which were very localized, they were localized, they started with New York, Washington State, California, then as though, uh, th then they started popping up in other places, but then some of those states that were originally hotspots started to get their cases under control. What we're seeing now is a little bit different, and it's a lot more widespread sea of red, if you will, uh, with, with variations. Next slide. Okay, now, I know that uh, our audience is from the East Coast, from, from Florida all the way up to DC and, and, and with the Carolinas. Uh, and, and so I'm going to show a few slides from Texas 
simply to illustrate some points. And I do have a, a couple of slides from Carolina uh, as well. So the picture nationally, the cases are increasing, but there is variability. There are some spots that are hotter than others, uh, is also present in Texas. Overall, Texas has the dubious honor of having been the first state to reach 1 million cases a few days ago. Um, and uh, it, it is also experiencing an increase in the number of cases. However, some areas are still handling it fairly well in contrast to others. So here you can see the distribution. Now this one is not adjusted for population, it's by counties, but where there's red, that's more, that there are more cases than what is yellow or pale. Um, that doesn't mean that this situation is not changing. I mean, one of the things that I've come to learn here uh, recently is that when, for example, in Houston, we have had reasonably good control uh, for the last month and a half, um, but that doesn't mean that that is a, a reason to show off, because I think the 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 place that is has it under control today may be singing a different song two weeks from now, whereas other states that were hotter uh, start to get theirs under control. We have seen this pattern over and over again, not only in Texas, not only in the nation, but worldwide. So there's a lot of variation from hot to cold or, or to under control. So there's variability. So the next slide, yes. So um, this is simply a summary of the number of daily cases in, in Texas as an example of one way to track numbers. These are absolute numbers of cases each day and superimposed on that are the different measures that were implemented by the state in terms of reopening or stepping back and and closing up again or pausing some reopening uh, uh, phases. And, and what you see is that, um, you know, from March uh, to April uh, to May 1, the cases were relatively low. Back then, we thought there were a lot of cases, but now with, with hindsight, we see that, in fact, the situation is, uh, I think, a lot more dire now. Uh, but to the point that around May 1, the state began to carefully reopen and they, they got away with it. We, we did okay for about a month, but then toward the end of May, Memorial Day, um, uh, and an additional reopening phase, we saw the cases skyrocket, uh, skyrocket. and this in, uh, ushered in the surges that we saw in June and July uh, after, uh, that led the state to taking a step back, as are many other states right now around the country, stepping back, reinstating some restrictive measures, um, passing mask mandates statewide, uh, et cetera. And then thanks to those measures, we began to see a decrease again until October uh, and where we are now where there was an uptick again. This, um, this pattern can be seen uh, in many other states as well. Next slide. So one of the uh, important indicators for any state, any county, and the country as a whole to track is what's called the RT estimate, or some people call it the R naught value. So, what we mean by this, and I think most folks in the audience will know, is the R naught value tells you, gives you an idea of how many other people one infected person can transmit the disease to. And if you take the SARS CoV 2 virus, which is the virus that causes COVID 19 infection, um, and you don't implement any type of protective measures at all, then a person who has uh, that, that virus will transmit it on average to about 2.3, 2.6 other people. As you implement measures that are protective, you put on masks, 
you isolate at home, um, you avoid gatherings, you social distance, that RNOT value starts going down. And what we are aiming for is a value that goes below one, because once you go below one, that means that on average, each infected person is going to transmit it to less than one other person, which means preventive measures are working. These are data from Texas, and there was a right after the July surge, you can see that the R0 value went below statewide for quite a long period of time, um, most of August and September, and then towards the beginning of October, it started creeping up again, and to the point that right now, statewide, we have an R0 value of 1.11. Now you may say, well, 1.11 is not 2.3, which is what it would be without any protective measures. That's true. But 1.11 multiplied by millions of people that live uh, in, in, in Texas, and you can extrapolate nationwide, where we now have more than 11 million cases, translates into a whole bunch of additional cases. We have to get this number down below one again. Next slide. And this is tracked in every state. Another um, thing that we've been hearing uh, several times uh, over the course of the last several months is um, people say, well, the only reason that we are seeing more cases is because we are testing a lot more. And there is no question that in the US, the level of testing now compared to where we were in April is markedly improved. The availability of different types of tests, and Dr. Heisler, Tommy will get into the different types of tests a little bit later, but um, there's no question that they are a lot more available. And obviously, if you test more, you're going to find more cases. So the question, understandably, arises that how come or why isn't the increase in cases that we're seeing simply attributable to the fact that we are testing more? Well, that's explained by this graph that's been prepared by our biostatistics department here at the UT School of Public Health, UT Health School of Public Health, um, that compares two lines. The orange line is the number of cases, the percent change every day in the number of new cases. And the blue line is the percent change in availability of tests every day. If the orange line and the blue line were totally parallel, then you could say that the increase that we're seeing in cases is simply a result of the increase in test availability. But when you see that orange line climb faster, than the blue line, then that means that the increased number of cases is real and it's not explained simply by more availability of tests. And that's what we are seeing now again. It's not the first time we're here uh, in Texas. And that's what we are seeing for the most part nationwide. Next slide. Other indicators and uh, data that that uh, that many states are following, and here again it's a it's a Texas example, is um, we use the data that that exists now to project out and try to estimate what's around the corner two weeks from now. Uh, I think nationally everybody's heard about the Institute for Health Metrics, I believe it's called, from the University of Washington, that the CDC and other government agencies have been uh, looking towards to try and figure out how many more cases are, are coming based on what we're seeing now, certainly how many more deaths. You have probably heard that it's projected that if left unchecked, we could have as many as 400,000 deaths by the time the end of January comes around, if not more. We're right now uh, uh, at around 250,000, so there's not that much more to go, uh, way to go. Um, and, and these projections are useful in trying to plan. They're not always right, but they are useful. 
So what we see on this graph, really the important part is on the right. We see that after today, or yesterday, November 16th, the statisticians in our department are plotting based on the existing data where we're likely to head over the next couple of weeks. And that gray triangle that you see there is what's called a confidence band. It gives it basically a range of uh, possibilities. We may see, and, and, and the truth lies somewhere within that range. So it could continue to go up at the same rate and you'd hit the top part of that gray triangle, or it may start to flatten a little bit as more measures or uh, protective measures are implemented and hopefully may even start to, to turn, to flatten and then start going down. So when I see a graph like this right now, uh, the way I interpret it is that um, there's a chance that things will get worse unless we do something, but if we do something, there's a chance that things will get better. Next slide. Okay, uh, and then uh, it's also important for, um, for, for all of us to look locally. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about uh, today and I, that I'm guessing a lot of questions will come is, you know, what to do? What do we do locally? What do we do in terms of returning to work or keeping workplaces open or for the holidays? And um, what I usually say is you need to have a good handle on the numbers, the data uh, nationally, but you also have to put them in the context of your local situation. There may be a nationwide uh, disaster uh, in terms of number of increasing cases, but you just might happen to live in one of those places where things are under very, very good control. That, that local information is very useful to you as an employer, or as a safety and health professional, in terms of the type of advice that you give the workplaces and the workers and the community that you are in. So as an example, in Houston, we have the Texas Medical Center, and every day we are looking at about five different indicators to see where we are. Some of them are city indicators of the greater metropolitan area, others are hospital-related indicators. And so um, what we see, and if you all attended the, um, the, the, the first time we gave this webinar back in September, you'll see that some things have disappeared. Uh, so for example, one of the things that we used to always monitor, and we still keep an eye on them, but we are feeling relatively comfortable with, is the availability of adequate personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers. Uh, we've got that pretty much under control. We need to keep tabs on it. We need to make sure that we don't get into a dire situation, but it's no longer one of our indicators because we feel pretty comfortable that we can adequately protect our workers. But we keep an eye on the, the, the R value, the RT value, which as I said, for the state is 1.11, and for Houston, the greater Houston area is the same thing. We look at how this R value compares to last week's. Last week it was a little lower, 1.06, and as I said, Three weeks ago, we were below one. So the direction is not encouraging. We look at what's called the positivity rate. That's the number of positive tests over the total number of tests that have been uh, conducted uh, over a seven day period, the average. And right now in the medical center, and remember we see a selected population. We're seeing people who come to the medical center uh, because they have symptoms, uh, et cetera. It's 5.2%. So that's not ideal. We tend to want positivity rates below five to say that we've actually got it more or less in control. And it is worrisome that we had those good numbers a month ago. We were at 3.4%. Con contrast this 5.2% uh, with 
the city of Houston. The city of Houston and the greater metropolitan areas of last night was over 8%, having been at or below 5% about three weeks ago. And for the state of Texas, as of today, it's around 14%. So what do these numbers mean and how can they be useful? So 14% tells us that we've got a big problem in the state, but that it is not uniformly distributed. In Houston, it's better than the state rate, but it's headed in a worrisome direction because it keeps increasing every week. Um, and um, in, the, in the medical center, in our case, it's also going up, although it is still uh, below. And, um, and, and you keep an eye on these, this positivity rate because it tells you which way things are headed. We also look at number of tests and how many new positives we have each week or each day as compared to last week, the week before, so new cases, and you can see that the trend is also upward for the greater Houston area. Hospitalizations. So hospitalizations uh, are going up, but for right now in the medical center, and I think we have learned a lot with the first uh, few surges, is the rate of increase of hospitalizations is not as accelerated as the rate of increase in cases in the community. That could mean a whole lot of things. It could mean we're doing a very good job in the hospitals, and I think we are, but it doesn't explain the whole story. It could also mean that the proportion of people who are getting the disease in the community is less likely to have severe disease that leads them to being hospitalized. You know, one of the fascinating things is we've always talked about the elderly as being the most at-risk group, and that is true, but precisely because of that, when you look at numbers of new cases among the very elderly, they are relatively low compared to other age groups. Why? Because these folks are staying home, they're staying away, and they're not coming into contact with other folks uh, that have COVID. And then finally, within the hospitals, we also look at our ICU capacity. Um, right now, the, the, the ICUs in our area are about 95% full. Um, you know, even before the pandemic, ICUs, this is not anything new, ICUs were, were full to near capacity. This would not be an, uh, uh, an unusual number. What you have to look at is, whether there are sufficient resources to capture an, another surge of COVID cases that's coming in. Right now we are doing okay. We have not had to activate, in contrast to what we had to do in the previous uh, surges, we have not had to activate our surge plans. In other words, for uh, converting regular hospital beds into ICU beds, limiting elective surgeries, et cetera. Uh, we're not, that's what we call phase two. We're not there yet, but we're keeping an eye on. So these are some data granted from Texas uh, because that's my experience, but the issue is not Texas. The issue is what kind of metrics can anybody in any state follow uh, that can be useful to them? So next slide. If we look at just a couple of slides that we found from North Carolina, we see that some of the similar trends, some of the trends that we are observing for Texas are also, uh, they also seem to be affecting North Carolina. So what you see here is the total number of cases has been increasing um, and they've been increasing in Carolina maybe a little bit earlier than in Texas. It, it began somewhere toward the end of uh, September. And these are PCR related tests uh, based on the, the nasopharyngeal swab that, that Tommy's gonna talk about. But there are other tests, test systems like antigen tests that some states factor into the positives and others don't. And he'll talk about that a little bit later. Next slide, when we look at the positivity rate, next slide, yeah. Positivity rate uh, in, in Carolina, North Carolina, you'll see that doing pretty good. Uh, in, uh, 
still above 5%. Ideal would have been below 5%, but it was relatively flat until the beginning of November, and then it started to creep up, so that now we're at around 8.6%, which is pretty similar to where we are in Houston, but it is less than we are in Texas. So again, these are examples of useful indicators that we as um, healthcare professionals, public health professionals, health and safety professionals can use to gauge what the situation is in our own uh, locality. Thanks. I'll turn it over to Janelle now. Sure, George, let me ask a question before Janelle hops on. There was a couple of questions that came through on your, on your graph. So before we get too far away from them, I thought maybe you could comment on them. First question was, what is the, what do we know yet on average, a percent that if, if I have COVID, I'm gonna end up in the hospital? Do we have an idea of what that number looks like? Yes, it, it's actually been going down. Uh, and that explains the sort of the, the discrepancy between rates going up in the state and in the community, if you will, and the hospitalization rates going a lot slower. When um, when we started in the pandemic back in February, March, about 20 or so percent of all patients with COVID were being hospitalized. And of those patients who were hospitalized, the majority were elderly, and of those elderly patients, a substantially very high proportion were dying. Now we're seeing fewer elderly people hospitalized. They're still being hospitalized, but, but fewer, because I think, as I was saying, they're taking better measures, and the overall hospitalization over the total number of COVID cases is lower than it was. And, and that probably represents a shift in the distribution of where the cases are occurring. They are occurring in younger age groups, for example. And many of those age groups, you know, frankly, are healthier, good, and they stand a very, very low risk of dying, of being hospitalized. That doesn't mean that they don't, uh, that they're not, that some aren't going to be hospitalized and some aren't going to die. They, they, they are, they will. But uh, that probably explains the difference between the hospitalizations now and back when we began. Excellent. And then there was a question specifically on this graph, and it was a great question to to ask: What the heck are those green counties doing that nobody else is doing? What what, what do we think is going on there? Um, I, I can only guess. Uh, one guess is um, that they probably have very few people. And I know that certainly Kidney County is very low population density. And you know, when you have fewer people, you're able to do more interventions effectively, right? You can, um, the, the public health message of masking can increase the ability to contact trace clusters uh, uh, improves. We all talk about contact tracing, and, and Tommy, I think some of us before the uh, webinar started were, were commenting on the fact that when rates in the community are sky high, contact tracing loses its value largely because you just, it's like trying to plug a, a hole in the dike. Uh, the, there are cracks everywhere, cases are surfacing everywhere, and calling up one person who had an exposure to a confirmed case is only going to be of limited value. However, when you've got the rates controlled in your community at a manageable level, when one pops up, a perceived cluster pops up, you can jump on that with aggressive contact tracing and shut it down very quickly. But it has to do with the background rates of the community. It can get out of hand and become essentially useless. Gotcha. And is it, your... your um your your clarification on the hospitalization rate is the question came through is that for all states in general um no 
actually that's not that that is probably not and and even within texas it's probably not correct but we 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 are seeing once again well everybody remember that back in in new york you know when new york had the initial surge they had a huge death rate huge it's still the highest ever we're talking about deaths in the tens of thousands and their hospitals were overrun and there is probably a relationship between hospitals being overrun or not being able to meet the surge in cases needing hospitalizations. And when that happens, standard of care goes down, despite the heroic nature of our healthcare workers, it, uh, quality goes down and death, deaths go up. We're starting to see a lot of that again uh, nowadays. So in Texas, El Paso, in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, has been um, suffering from a, you know, a, not only a surge in cases, but the hospital systems are, are overloaded and they're having to transport patients out by ambulance or by helicopter to other places that have more hospital capability. Uh, the positivity rate, I was listening to the radio this morning in some places in Idaho and in, I believe, Wisconsin. I'm not sure. The positive, remember I said ideal is below 5%. There are the test positivity rate in some localities in Idaho as well uh, is nearly 90%. When you have those rates and your hospital resources are stretched, you're going to have more deaths. Yeah, sad situation. I'm gonna to get to Janelle's slides here. Do we know any information about returning the kids back to school? Has that had an impact on the number of cases? Are you asking me or Janelle? Just whoever, as we slide into to Janelle's slides. Do we have any data yet to, to know what that impact that's had? Yeah, a little bit of data, and some of it comes from Europe, um, and some of it uh, comes from uh, what we're noticing here. And you know, the, 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 this may change <laughs> because there's one. The only constant in COVID is that we're learning more, and everything is changing over time. But you do the best with what you have. Right now, it appears that elementary school kids, you know, elementary schools are doing a better job of containing uh, spread, uh, maybe in part because these smaller kids, although they can spread the, inf the infection, they may be less prone to infecting others. Um, colleges and universities, uh, it's very, it's highly varied. You know, there are colleges that where cases are still rampant and they, they try to reopen and start face-to-face -face classes. Then they, you know, a week later, they have to shut down because they've got a bunch of cases that have come in. But there are other shining examples of universities that are doing a very, very good job. Uh, again, not to, not to sweep home, but, but it's because I know the local ones. Rice University uh, here in Houston is doing a spectacular job. They're having in-person classes, but every student gets tested is required to get tested every two weeks. And when you look at it, it's a university with a lot of resources. And of course, not all universities have that many resources. When you look at how they space people out, how they have their classes outdoors, in Houston, you can do that. This is not Minnesota in November. Uh, we can still be outdoors and, and that helps. That's an advantage. I'm not gonna say it's not, but they are spacing. And then the they have engaged their student association as an active partner in enforcing all of these measures. So things like gatherings uh, uh, at clubs or you know bars and stuff like that, they're doing a very good job with the assistance of the student association to control that. And they're having good results. 
and then high school, middle school, and high school is yeah, that that one those areas are a little bit more difficult to control. Uh, there are lots of schools, at least in the Houston area, that are opening and closing and in in person classes and then back to remote, and that's a constant. So I think the situation is less well controlled in middle and high schools. That's the experience here locally. I don't know about nationally. Perfect. Thanks, George. We've got uh, several excellent questions that are posed. So I promise you we're going to get to all of those questions at some point during this webinar. Um, and we also will provide this entire uh, presentation and recorded webinar. So you can go back and listen and fast forward or, or uh, go back and listen to us in slow motion if you want to. All of that will be provided when we're finished here. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Janelle Rios. Hi, everybody, and thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Janelle Rios. I'm a faculty associate at the UT Health School of Public Health, and I'm coming to you today from Houston, where it's beautiful, uh, beautiful weather today. Um, I'm going to be sharing a well-known and often used public health tool that serves as the foundation for controlling hazards in the workplace. Um, I understand that this is an audience of primarily safety professionals, so this might be a bit of a review for you. Um, but this is, I'm going to talk about the hierarchy of controls as, uh, as it relates to COVID-19. Um, the hierarchy refers to the level of effectiveness of each of those controls. And it's usually displayed just like this as an inverted pyramid where the most effective control is at the top, meaning elimination. Now, the, the double-headed arrow I have on the left side of this screen is meant to indicate that the most effective controls are at the top of this pyramid and the least effective are at the bottom. So as, as you review this slide set and you look at that, um, this is just a little reminder that elimination is much better than personal protective equipment. So we're going to go through each layer, but first we're going to think about the hazard. What is the hazard? The hazard is the virus that causes COVID-19. So how do we eliminate, again, the most effective control, elimination, how do we eliminate it from the workplace? Well, keep it from entering your front door um, and employ self-screening techniques uh, immediately. Surely every business and company out there has employed self-screening uh, techniques already. Uh, but this means that you train your employees on what to look out for if they become ill. So if they have a temperature, if they uh, are feeling flu-like symptoms, have them not come into the office and spread it uh, into the workplace. Um, limit the number of people who are coming into the office, especially visitors. Even consider uh, not allowing any visitors into the workplace at all. And uh, those who come in, uh, do what you can to make sure that they are not positive for COVID-19. Um, and if people do have to come into the workplace, have them wash their hands immediately upon entry into the building. Um, have them wear a mask at all times in, in uh, the public areas um, of, of the workplace. Um, so, in substitution, the next layer, uh, normally we would uh, think of a different way to substitute, but you know, in this case, it's the virus and we're not gonna substitute the virus. Um, so we're gonna move on to engineering controls. Engineering controls means we wanna isolate people from the hazard. Um, and most of us have seen that at the grocery stores or retail establishments where physical barriers have been erected 
um, to separate the public from the, the worker. Um, th those plexiglass screens are, are very helpful in that regard. Um, unless the worker, because it's hard to hear them with a the mask and a screen, will pop over onto the other side, lower their mask to ask you a question. That, that's not effective. Um, also, in isolating people from the hazard, we can employ disinfection techniques. Um, next slide, please, Tommy. So I wanted to show this screen, and this is just a screen capture of the EPA website. Um, this tool provides a, a, a searchable way to look for disinfectants that have been shown to disinfect the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, and it's searchable, which is very handy because we all have different kinds of workplaces, some you know, manufacturing or retail, restaurants. Um, so what I have highlighted here on this particular uh, screenshot is contact time. Now contact time and the concept of it is important because when you apply the disinfectant on, on the surface, you wanna allow it a sufficient amount of time in order for it to disinfect um, and kill the virus that causes um, COVID. Now, some disinfectants uh, can work in as, less, in, in as little as one minute and some require 30 minutes. So be aware of how much contact time is required for that particular disinfectant um, and use the one that's appropriate for the setting. Um, in, in certain places uh, like elevator buttons, you may want a, a very short contact time of less than five minutes or you might be able to, to get away with a longer contact time if people aren't using the freight elevator in the evenings, for example. Um, so, but here, the box is kind of here on the left. Uh, you, can, you can search this particular website uh, very easily. <clears throat> it's called the List and Tool. And as far as government websites go, this, this one's pretty handy. So I do uh, recommend it. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, now back to engineering controls, we're still there. Um, there are certain uh, technologies that you can employ as well. For example, um, increase, increasing the number of air exchanges into the building to where fresh air is brought in rather than just recirculating the, the current air, but bringing in fresh air is very helpful because this virus is somewhat susceptible, or actually very susceptible to uh, UV light. Um, there are also some other technologies that are out there where um, UV lights are placed in the HVAC systems. Um, just remember that there is more than just the initial capital cost. There's also some maintenance costs because somebody is going to have to change out filters, clean off UV lamps because they will get dusty. Um, and that person who's doing that, they're going to need to be in, uh, they need to be trained on how to do that so they don't infect themselves. Uh, now we can move on to administrative controls. And administrative controls means that we are changing how work is performed in order to protect the worker. Um, so, so here we want to have an impact on behavior. So the way you impact behavior is to offer training. So earlier I talked about self-screening. We must really teach our employees exactly what to look for and at what point they need to not come in, uh, in into the workplace. We need to teach, and if we're encouraging them to telecommute uh, from, from home, we need to teach them how to use the telecommuting technologies um, and, and how to get into your office computer from home. 
we also need to teach them proper hand hygiene, how, how to wash your hands. Um, a lot of times folks, I see them in the ladies room, we'll wash them really quickly, but we need 20 seconds um, with uh, soap and water. Additionally, these are stressful times. So we consider offering resilience and, and mental health uh, training to employees. Um, it, it's a tough time, especially if uh, certain employees have um, lost income because uh, the job situation or their spouse has lost income or they've had a family member who was positive or ill or even have died uh, from this terrible disease. Um, at the workplace, uh, practice social distancing, and this is another behavior uh, that should be reinforced with signage. Uh, lots of stickers on the floor, uh, floors, uh, uh, stickers on the walls, you know, limit the number of people that are in elevators. I work on the 10th floor of a building, so I'm fixated on elevators. Um, organize work. So uh, it's it, you've got teams of people who um, go into the workplace at the same time and keep that team intact. Um, and then you have separate teams and they they have uh they go into the workplace at the same time as well, if that's needed, um, but really limit the number of folks uh, that are at the workplace at any given time as much as possible. But the whole uh, benefit to the team approach is that if, if you've got this one team and one person uh, must go into quarantine or if one person pops up positive, then that team goes into quarantine, but you've got other intact teams that are not affected by this. That way, uh, business can continue. Um, and limit the sharing of physical supplies and equipment. Uh, in, in my world, that's copy machines and uh, printers and, and things like that. Uh, next slide, please. So there, our least effective control is personal protective equipment, and that's PPE. Um, this is highly visible. You see that uh, in the workplace. And because you guys are, are safety professionals, you understand uh, probably that um, personal protective equipment such as this um, uh, half-face elastomeric respirator, it's an air purifying respirator. It's got um, P100 cartridges. Um, or this N95 respirator, these things need to be individually fitted on an employee's face by a safety professional. So when you fit this onto somebody's face, you, you teach them how to do the positive and negative seal checks so that it's, it's very tight up against the cheek and the chin and above the nose. Um, so these, these are employed by people who are in uh, work settings with a lot of particulate matter um, and healthcare professionals. So we, we tend to limit the use of these uh, for those folks. Um, next slide, please. So I know I'm running out of time. Um, and I, I've got this extra category here, and this is just because of COVID-19, um, where we used to not have this particular category, but I'm calling it community, community protective equipment. And that's things like this uh, cloth mask or um, this disposable surgical mask. These are very helpful, but they are truly designed to protect other people from you. Now, you are given some protection uh, by wearing one of these. In fact, it, it's, it's about 50% effective. But keep in mind, these things are loose fitting. 
Um, there will be gaps around the cheek and under the chin, especially with the cloth mask that doesn't have the uh, metal band at the top. Um, thinking about training, you know, provide these things for employees, but also train them on how to use them. For example, uh, when you're taking these things off and on, only handle them by the, the loops. You never want to touch the inside because that goes up against your face. Um, and you don't want to touch the outside because that could be contaminated with uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, uh, I thank you for your attention. And uh, now we're going on to Dr. Emery. Thanks. Thank you, Janelle. Oh, I think it's me. I guess it's me. Sorry, Tommy. I thought That's it was all right. It's all right. Yes. Uh, the slides keep me honest, right? Keep all of us honest. <laughs> so I just wanted to quickly talk about what current testing options there are right now. Uh, we we test hundreds of people every day in our uh, occupational health center here in Houston. Uh, I think to date we've tested over 12,000 uh, workers to get them back to work as quickly as possible. And you know what you're going to see throughout these slides here is that not a lot's changed over the past several months. You know, the, the first test to come out was the, the PCR test. I think we're all familiar with that now. That's the, 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 the swab into the nose, deep into the nose. If you have to travel, if you have to go out of state and you're, the state that you're traveling to or the country you are traveling to requires a test, most likely they are requiring this PCR test. It's the tried and true. It's the gold standard. It's it's the most accurate test we have. And it's still the, the original test that, that came out. Not, not a lot has changed in that regard. The newer viral test that came out is the antigen test. This checks for the virus in just a different way than the PCR test does. Pros and cons to both of these tests, which I'm going to go over briefly. And then there's also the antibody test, which checks to see have has your body produced any antibodies to a infection that you may have had. So, you know, the PCR test is a swab that has to be sent to the lab. It checks for the actual virus in your body at the time that the swab was taken. The antigen test is basically the, the same type of test, but it checks for the proteins on the virus. It's not checking for the actual DNA or RNA of that of the virus. But again, checking for components of the virus and gives you a, a positive or a negative result. Antibody is a blood test. It's either a finger prick test for blood or a blood draw that's sent off to a lab. Again, it checks for any, any indication of antibodies that your body may have acquired as the result of the infection. Pros and cons, you know, the PCR test and the antigen test are both uncomfortable tests test to to uh, undergo. I've done one. I've done two on myself actually. They're not comfortable. They they burn, they make your eyes water. They're they're not painful but they're not comfortable. Uh, the PCR test is highly sensitive. If you are infected with the virus, more likely than not, that PCR test is going to show positive for weeks after you've recovered from that test because it is so sensitive, it's going to still detect old dead virus that's floating around still in your body. We've seen patients recover and three months later, that PCR test is still showing a positive result. By no means 
means that they're still infected or contagious or have enough virus floating around to get somebody else sick, but the test is so sensitive, it's still gonna show positive. The antigen test, uh, still uncomfortable. It's a deep nasal swab test. It is less sensitive than the PCR test. You know, the PCR test is going to detect around you know, 99% uh, of, of those infected. So when we say the antigen test is less sensitive, we're still talking about around a 90% sensitivity, which is still great. But when you compare it to a gold standard like a PCR test, it is going to be less sensitive. The good news is if, it tell, if the antigen test shows a positive result, you can be very certain that that is a true positive result because it is highly specific. Uh, the, the major pro to the antigen quick test is you have that result back within a few minutes or a few hours versus 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours uh, that, that the PCR test is going to turn around. Antibody test, you know, we thought early on or some people thought early on, well, we can do a quick finger prick test on somebody, show if they've got an antibody uh, result, which means, hey, great, you can go back to work, you're, you're fine. Uh, we, we've learned throughout the throughout this pandemic probably not the best way to screen for people uh, for for the virus. You know, an antibody test it's a good test to show if you have some antibodies, but we still aren't quite sure what that means. Are you fully immune from getting the the virus again? Maybe, probably. Can you? Does it mean you're you're immune for the rest of your life? Probably not. But we still don't know. Are those antibodies going to stay strong or are they going to decrease over the next several months? Again, we don't know. Does it mean that you don't have to get a vaccine when the vaccine comes out if you've already had this virus and you show antibodies? We don't know. I think the current recommendation looks like it's going to be, even if you've had COVID, they're going to recommend you get the vaccine because we don't know how long those those natural antibodies are going to last in your body. So pros and cons to all of those types of, of tests. So now uh, a quick summary on the, the test. Now I'm going to pass this over to Christina. Hi, thank you. Yes, I'm Christy Mehta, and I am a faculty with UT Health School of Public Health. I serve as the regional dean for the El Paso campus. Um, of our six campus structure. So I'm, I'm in the place that Dr. Del Close uh, mentioned in an overwhelming situation, unfortunately. I'm just gonna briefly springboard off of what Dr. Rios described when she was talking about the different methods of controls. And when we think about workplace safeguards, to be the most effective, they really should be tailored to your place of business. So we know that there's different levels of exposure and different drivers of infection risk based upon type of industry and more specifically, um, the type of business operation. So one of the first areas is with um, environmental controls and in particular thinking about different, um, or environmental sources rather, thinking about surfaces. Um, this could be different for different workplace settings. Maybe it's an office where there's a, you know, the sharing of office supplies, pens for example, um, looking at those frequently touched shared surfaces, doorknobs, light switches, are there common areas? So it's important to keep in mind that surfaces could potentially have a role in transmission. One factor to consider for 
um, SARS-CoV-2 is that this virus is relatively unstable in the environment. There have been a lot of studies and more recently studies that have shown this virus to survive on various surfaces, including cell phones, for as long as 28 days at room temperature, but that's without any intervention. And when we think about viruses we're more familiar with, such as norovirus, um, the cruise ship virus, or rotavirus, the virus that's known as the daycare diarrhea virus, those viruses are actually more hardy. So um, referring to Dr. Rios's comments about the EPA disinfectants, that's important to keep in mind. And then also though, think about just increasing the frequency of disinfecting or cleaning those surfaces. Most of the disinfectants require that any visible dirt and debris is removed first. And if should we get in a situation where disinfectants become scarce, because this virus is relatively, again, relatively unstable in the environment, vigorously scrubbing with soap and water can mechanically remove the virus. But having said that, I think it's also important to remember the proper implementation of controls and use a disinfectant, you know, if that's possible. And then think about the different factors that might happen in the workplace. You know, the in, as I think Dr. Rios and others have mentioned, the inappropriate uh, wearing of, of face coverings, even if it's momentarily, perhaps an unexpected overcrowding of, of customers, and then the inappropriate interpretation of virus testing, right? So someone may have tested last week and they obtained negative results. They can't guarantee they're gonna be negative for the virus the following week. And then finally, probably the biggest uh, driver of infection risk is the wild card, and that's the role of the customer, the patron, the client, someone who enters the business and may completely disrupt those workplace safeguards that have been implemented. So it's important to anticipate some type of disruption so that risk can then be mitigated. So I think now it is Dr. Emery's turn. Okay, well, greetings from Houston. I'm with all my peeps back up in Charlotte, so I wish I was there in person. I've uh, spoken up there probably about 10 years or so. Uh, I mercifully only have one slide, and I uh, just want to uh, cover four main points. Some of these have already been covered, but I'd like to underscore them. Uh, number one is, uh, remember way back when, perhaps in uh, January, when the press began covering this uh, issue, they were referring to it as a novel coronavirus. And over time, the term novel got dropped, but in fact, it's really, really important because novel means new, so that there are some aspects of this virus that are known, but as you've already heard from the previous presentations, there are a lot of things that are not known about this uh, virus. So just think back to early on in this event, uh, it was unclear whether transmissibility could occur without a person exhibiting symptoms. That's not always the case for other uh, diseases. and so. Also remember that there was a not a national call for uh, masking because or face coverings because there was concerns that that would put an undue burden on N95s that were in short supply that were uh, needed for health frontline healthcare providers. So my, my, I guess my point on number one here is that we should all expect that things may change, and I think it's our obligation to make our constituencies that we serve be aware of that as well. That we're operating on the best available knowledge now, but, but set the expectation that, that things may change. Also, Dr. Delclos mentioned the R naught value. You'll see in the popular press, sometimes they just use the capital R, uh, but 
uh, others you'll see an R with a zero, and then there, you'll see an R with a T. And what's the difference there? The R with a zero means how, if you have a single positive case, how many additional cases might we have with no other interventions in place? And I think uh, George referred to, I think the current number is between 2.3 and 2.6. Um, but RT is that same concept, but with all of the various controls in place. So I just think that's one of the things we really monitor for here because that's a very sensitive barometer indicator of uh, how things are heading. That's item number one. Item number two is we throw the term screening around a lot, but when, when I, with a lot of the people that I deal with, they're perhaps safety professionals, when they think of screening, they're thinking of temperature checks and uh, maybe a travel history or some basic questions when one arrives at the workplace or the school. But, but in fact, screening actually begins at home. That, that goes back to Janelle's presentation about the, the notion of elimination. So when we're educating folks about uh, management of this uh, virus, we really need to clarify what the concept of screening is. And dovetailing back on number one here, uh, as we get more and more community spread, some things that we might encounter, I can't say for certain, but it may be we get to the point where um, both contact tracing and temperature tracing or temperature screening become moot because it's it's not providing us any valuable information. So just understand that. Uh, the third item has to do with masking versus PPE. Uh, as Janelle mentioned, um, there are these face coverings and surgical masks that are intended primarily to keep you from inadvertently infecting someone else. There's current information that's just evolved uh, that suggests that they also provide some limited degree of, of protection for the wearer as well, which is good news, by the way. Um, but then we also have PPE, personal protective equipment. And that's where we get into things such as N95s, P100s, PAPRs, and the like. Those are the ones that there was great concern that they didn't want to run on these because these are, you know, early on when the supply chain was uh, interrupted, that uh, these were really to be targeted for the, um, uh, the front-facing uh, healthcare providers there. Uh, and then my fourth point has to do with cleaning and disinfection and environmental persistence. Both Janelle and Christy have mentioned this, that um, the, the, uh, the virus has been shown to be viable on, on stainless steel and plastic surfaces up to 72 hours. Uh, Christy just mentioned apparently it could last longer on a phone case. Um, but this notion of cleaning and disinfection is really important that you ensure that whoever is doing the cleaning and disinfection, that the materials that they're using are EPA registered disinfectants and that they are mixed to the prescribed uh, concentration and the issue of contact time. And we see that a lot around here where uh, the person goes up, sprays down the doorknob, the high touch surface, and then immediately wipes it off and then moves on to the next spot. So, um, and, and I, I, I guess I'll kick it back to Christy real quick here, but um, the, the virus is quite susceptible to UV light. And so the focusing on the cleaning and disinfection really should be towards indoor environments although it's nice to do the major door handles for the school, for example. But, but if, you, if you have limited resources, the outdoors, uh, it's probably less of a risk. Would you agree, Chrissy? Yes. 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 Okay. So, okay, that, that's my one slide. I think that in the next slide, just might be some references. Um, so I'll turn it over. Dr. Dufresne is up next. All right, thanks, Bob. Uh, this is Dave Dufrate signing in uh, from San Antonio. Uh, I think what, uh, what Dr. Menes said 
uh, earlier, our our school is uh, made up of a network of uh, different uh, different operations, with the headquarters being in Houston. Uh, you heard from Dr. Mena down in El Paso, over in El Paso. I'm here in San Antonio, and we have three other campuses in Dallas, Austin, and Brownsville, who are all, uh, um, as you might imagine, engaged in um, a lot of COVID efforts. So I'm here in San Antonio, and I'm going to talk a little bit about OSHA and what OSHA has to say as far as COVID uh, is, uh, as far as our efforts in, in uh, the workplace and COVID prevention, as well as recording and reporting our cases. Many of you on this call may be in positions where you have to uh, either record uh, COVID cases in the workplace or even actually uh, notify uh, OSHA in the event of a hospitalization or um, unfortunately in the event of a loss of life. Um, but COVID is uh, not, not any different from any other work-related illness out there. Um, and so as the standard is uh, is presented, uh, you have to record a, a COVID case, and that is confirmed by a positive test of a worker. But then also you need to establish its work relatedness, and this is not any uh, anything uh, different from any other work related illness. And so if a if you do have a suspected COVID case and it does re result in medical care beyond first aid, then it does go on your OSHA 300 form. But then the question uh, that I am continuously getting um, asked is, how do we determine work-relatedness? Well, uh, OSHA relies on a few different sources of evidence. One is based on the employer investigation and the evidence that is available to that employer. Um, and then it's the uh, employer's responsibility to try to figure out if that COVID was transmitted at work. And so OSHA, if they were to come in and look at this and look at your OSHA 300 forms, they would want to see evidence that you have conducted some form of an investigation and uh, assisted the, uh, the public health authorities in their contact tracing and trying to establish if the COVID case was transmitted at work. So when might a COVID case uh, need to be reported to OSHA? Well, it's not any different from any other illness. Uh, as the standard is written, an employer must report any worker fatality within eight hours of any type of amputation, loss of an eye, or a fatality. And uh, also you need to report any type of hospitalization of a worker within 24 hours. So if you have a, a suspected work-related COVID case of an employee and they do end up uh, being placed in the hospital, then you do need to notify OSHA within 24 hours. And so OSHA has, just like many of the other uh, agencies in our federal government, they have some really nice websites uh, for you to get information. They uh, provided two of those here where you can uh, gain uh, some data as far as their uh, enforcement res uh, response plan, how many um, actual investigations they have uh, uh, conducted, on-site investigations, as well as uh, any type of penalties or citations that they have uh, issued to employers. And so I put those for, for your future reference. And so that's my one slide. I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about pandemic fatigue and we're gonna swing back to Houston and Dr. Delclose is going to take care of that. Thanks, Dave. So um, I think when we look at 
the national rates uh, and, and the, the picture that we are confronted with in terms of dramatic and very worrisome increases in, um, in, in the case rates, we have to ask ourselves why. Uh, you know, why is this happening? And there's a whole host of factors uh, from what I call mixed messaging from our authorities at the local level, the state level, the national level, messages that conflict with each other to, um, you know, differences in the distribution of higher risk populations in some parts of the country, like a greater proportion, for example, of Hispanics who we know are at a greater risk of, of having severe illness or where the AIDS distribution is <clears throat> shifted towards older populations. But one of the things that uh, is surfacing a lot in the press and that I think is a real issue, and many of you are probably already experiencing this, is what's been called pandemic fatigue. We have been, uh, we have been at this now for about nine months. Um, after some inconsistent messaging early on in terms of just what types of protective measures individuals in society should take to decrease their chances of acquiring infection and spreading it to others. You know, there was uh, some questions early on about community masking. First they said no, now they say yes, uh, and some other things. The message for the last several months has now been very consistent. Um, it involves masking of everybody, especially in public uh, places and in the workplace. It involves maintaining physical distance or social distancing of at least six feet or more and limiting contacts at, uh, closer than that to, to, to less than 15 minutes, for example, and always while wearing a mask. It involves good hand washing and it involves invo avoiding um, uh, large gatherings, right? Um, we've heard this every day. We miss our old lives. And so it's not surprising that uh, at some point we begin to lower our guard simply because we're just fatigued. So what do we mean by uh, pandemic fatigue? And, and, and CDC has not really put out a guideline. We tend to follow CDC guidelines for whatever they're possible. They don't really have um, much in this area, but the Johns Hopkins uh, Institute for Global Health, I believe it is, um, did publish some, some pointers that I think can be useful to you. So by pandemic fatigue, um, we're talking about an individual sense of emotional exhaustion and frustration, and just an overall sense of feeling impatient that uh, we as members of society are feeling now that we're in month number 10 of this pandemic. Um, pandemic fatigue can manifest itself in a number of places, including the workplace. In the workplace, the typical signs that you need to look out for that could be an indicator of, fatigue, of pandemic fatigue uh, setting into your workforce are um, uh, less levels of complying with health and, health and safety protocols, so decreased diligence, an overall drop in morale, which can also be influenced by other factors such as the uncertainty of whether you're going to have a job tomorrow to, co to come to uh, because it may have been shut down. Um, productivity just tapering off when it really shouldn't have been. Lots of anxiety and irritability or difficulty concentrating. And, and the problem with pandemic fatigue is that like you know, all of y'all are health and safety professionals. We know that when fatigue sets in into any worker, that is a predisposition to the risk of injury going up and, and, and bad things happening when people are tired. Same thing is here, right? In pandemic fatigue, it increases the risk for injury and also maybe predisposing to other types of illnesses. Now, obviously, when you lower your guard, 
because of pandemic fatigue, your risk goes up for acquiring COVID if you're in a scenario where you might be exposed to COVID and you're not following the proper measures. But it's not the only condition. So mental health disorders, you've probably heard that they are also on the rise as a result of the COVID um, pandemic. Things like increased rates of depression and anxiety and irritability going on. All of these uh, are also a manifestation of pandemic fatigue that can predispose you to that. Or maybe it's the chicken and the egg. Maybe the depression predisposes you to lowering your guard and vice versa. There's probably It probably goes both ways. So what's the response to that? Uh, you know, unfortunately, the message is, well, fortunately or unfortunately, the message is consistency in knowing that the measures that are being recommended, as intrusive as they might be, they work. Masking works. Isolate, uh, social distancing works. Washing your hands works and avoiding large gatherings works. And we just, uh, it's the antidote to this fatigue. And there is, really is no other solution than to being persistent until such time as, uh, for example, a vaccine becomes widely available. By widely available, I'm referring to the entire community, to the entire population of the United States. And even then, although the, the current numbers are very, very, very exciting and promising for some of the newer vaccines, like the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, um, it's probably not going to completely do away for a while with some of these safety measures. Masking is probably not going to go away for a while, even uh, if we get the population vaccinated for a while. So there are things that we can do uh, individually for ourselves. So, uh, and, and probably top of the list is, is remembering that what you are doing is not only to protect yourself, but to protect others, including your loved ones and your coworkers. Um, you know what they are, I don't have to repeat them, washing your hands and wearing a mask and, and watching your distance, uh, but also combining this with taking some, taking greater control of your own health and looking at opportunities to do something other than work or other than wondering about the, the COVID uh, pandemic, rather than watching the news, which is bombarding us with this information all day. You know, finding time to, to, to read, to get some exercise, to eat well, trying to get as much decent sleep as you can, um, can also help offset some of this pandemic fatigue. Next slide. And then, next slide, please. And then, um, as employers or as health and safety professionals for the workforce that we are charged with serving, what can we do? Well, we can we can send this message consistently and um, and effectively, but by being empathetic and more framing it as an encouragement, right? To people practice this self care that I was referring to, to really look for opportunities to disconnect as much as possible from work, including you know the iPhone, the thing that we're all, or at least I'm guilty of all day being on the same phone during non-work hours. Uh, especially at a time when most people are working from home or many people are working from home and it's the, 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 the barrier between work and life away from work becomes blurred. So intentionally separating that out and disconnecting and trying to look for other ways to reduce stress. Um, if you have vacation time and you, uh, and you work for an employer that uh, provides paid time off, then looking for opportunities to just take a few days off to, for, I call it a mental health break, um, so you can recharge. And then we, uh, you know, we can't, 
back off the uh, enforcing or reminding people to follow the protocols that we have in the workplace to ensure their health and safety, um, doing it empathetically, but being insistent. The protocols are there to be followed and keeping those expectations consistent um, as long as we do our part too. So as we know, uh, in the workplace, we, we, we can implement protocols, but we also have to do our share to make sure that workers have the resources they need to be able to effectively comply with those protocols. Enough PPE, enough sanitizers, enough wash stations, enough opportunities for breaks, uh, et cetera. Thank you. I think the next slide is just a list of references that you can look at uh, when we distribute the slide set to you. But that's it uh, on my end, and I believe this is the last slide of the presentation. It sure is. So we have about 45 minutes. So I'm going to roll through some of these questions and and uh, feel free to keep typing in those questions because they're always excellent questions. It, it gets us thinking and hopefully we can answer them for you. So I'm going to start back to the very first question. One of the first questions that was that was asked of us. What do you think about climate uh, in relation to the increased activity in the COVID-19 cases being on a border? Uh, southern border states versus a northern border state. Does does anything does the climate play a role in the the activity? I, I can try that one. So you know, early on there were actually some studies uh, out of China, I believe, were the first ones talking about whether COVID spread more in you know warmer temperatures and the lower. I really haven't kept up with that, but I can tell you that the main point of concern right now is that climate does have an effect. It has an effect in those parts of the country where it really gets cold in winter. And therefore people that are uh, having, that, that were doing a lot of outdoor activities are forced to go into an indoor environment where the opportunities for uh, congregation uh, increase into environments that may be poorly ventilated. And in contrast, the more temperate areas like where we live, um, even in December, it's not unusual for us to be able to do a lot of outdoor activities. It just doesn't get that colder. If it does, it's it's a couple of days and then we're able to do it. So I think climate plays a role in that sense. To me right now, that is the most important thing that the, the colder temperatures really invite people to go, go indoors into scenarios where they might be putting themselves at greater risk. And you can't reasonably ask them to go out and freeze, right? Uh, so anyway, that's my take on that. Excellent. What about, um, you know, the question was in general, uh, do we think that politics during this political season played a role in both the influx of cases and the, you know, the, the reopenings, the shutdowns of, of businesses, I guess the, the overall strategy that the U.S. had and the activity of the cases, do we think that politics played a role you know, for or against, I guess, those scenarios. Anybody gonna jump on a limb there? I mean, I would say, I think it did, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, you know, I think there'll be long-term studies on, on some of that stuff. States that decided to completely shut down versus states that never shut down. States that decided they were not gonna enforce a mask mandate versus those that did enforce a mask mandate, I think, Politics probably had had roles, you know, at some degree in all of that, and and maybe the the future will tell us how big of a role. So, so I mean, I I agree. I think it did play a role, but I think we need to try and it, 
as difficult as it might seem to try and factor out the politics and just look at the consequences and what opportunities there are for that. What opportunities are there to, to get around a, a, a consensus, to get a consensus of measures that we can all agree on despite the politics? And so, and so I'll cite the UK here because they did a very good study from the Royal College that was published like in April or May, it was early on, where they looked at their own failures and, and, and uh, in, in the UK uh, that facilitated the spread. And at the top of the list, it's a great report if you had a chance, uh, if you get a chance to read it, at the top of the list was lack of consistent messaging from the authorities. Lack of consistent messaging. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you have, and it doesn't matter, you can pick whatever you want to pick, a local authority versus a state authority, or even within a, a municipality, a judge versus a mayor, or, a, you know, at the national level, a White House versus the governors, et cetera. When those messages are inconsistent, uh, there's not a unified message, people get confused or they just get irritable and they blow it off. And so the end result is not a good one. We have to come to some consensus around what the appropriate measures are because the data are there that indicate they work. So it's not by happenstance that the book that catalogs the 100th uh, anniversary of the public health service is entitled Plagues and Politics. That's probably one of the most apt titles I've ever encountered. <laughs> Well, and I think, you know, George ended with that, the slides on, on you know, pandemic fatigue, you know, and I think Texas is a great example of, of, of a state that, you know, I, I think to a great extent, we tried everything, right? We, we shut down and you can argue that maybe it wasn't long enough or maybe it was too long or we should never have shut down, but we did shut down. We closed restaurants and bars and salons. We enforced a mass mandate. And our numbers are back higher than they were before we did all that. So, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think I think history may tell us long term what really worked, what didn't work, what we should have done better. Uh, and sometimes politics probably does play a role in some of that. Question about church services. We're planning to have a worship service outside, socially distanced, uh, with masks. And we're planning to sing, the congregation singing. Is that a good idea, knowing all that they're putting in place? Any opinions on that? This is Bob. I, I, I mean, I would also emphasize the spacing. The notion of being outside is, is uh, helpful, but also how far apart will folks be spaced? Um, sure. If they're far enough apart, six feet or greater, that would further reduce the risk, I would think. So uh, we actually had a dedicated webinar on religious or, uh, organizations. So it was like 20 years ago, wasn't it, Tommy? Something like June? It seems like it. Um, and, you know, CDC did come out with some guidance for, and they're, they're still there. And, you know, the good thing about CDC is they constantly update their recommendations. So I'd encourage you to look at that. Um, I think several of the measures that the, that the um, the person who posed the question um, uh, stated are, are, are useful measures. Singing is a little bit complicated. Remember that there is there are well-documented cases of super spreaders simply in congregations that had um, 
singing. Singing is one of those activities that probably generates aerosols more than than droplets, where aerosols become a, a risk. But the other factor that you need to take into account is the 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 demographic makeup of your congregation. And so if there is an opportunity to combine in-person presence with some remote attendance, especially for those who are most vulnerable to COVID and for the severe forms of COVID, like the elderly, then I'd encourage you to include that. Yeah, and I, I will point out the, the the asker of that question says she did lose her father to COVID. So she is really against that scenario. So, uh, you know, our condolences for for your loss of, of your father. Nobody wants to go through that. Thank you for the question. Let's see, uh, Our this question is, our public health district has stopped reporting the seven-day positivity rate and now only reports the overall cumulative positivity rate. When I calculated the seven-day rate last week, it was over 18%, yet the public health's cumulative rate is only around 8%. Any idea why they would do that? Nope. I mean, any takers on that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say no. I, I, I would look into the. I said we wouldn't talk about politics, but I would look at what are some of the drivers mm -hmm. that preceded that change, just to get a grasp. I have not heard of other places doing that. The test positivity rate is still a very important indicator. Of George, this one's to you. Can Dr. Delclose talk about the K value, the dispersion factor, and how it differs from the RT value? I knew this was going to come up and I didn't review it. I reviewed it about a month ago. What I can tell you is, uh, no, I can't. actually, I'll look it up and maybe I'll answer it in a few minutes, but I had it all ready to go and then I haven't looked at it in three or four weeks. It, it is a different way of looking. So it's in, uh, it complements the R value, the RT value, and some people prefer it. Um, the fact is, you're going to get, you're going to find some academic article to make a case for looking at the K value over the R value or even the percent positive rate. The reality is, it's not really taken off in a widespread manner that I'm uh, that I'm uh, aware of. But give me a few minutes, and I'll pull my notes from the last time. Sorry about that. Thanks, George. Uh, the, another question was, will these slides be shared? Absolutely. The slide deck, the complete recorded video of this webinar, so you can you can reference that as well. And we will we will send that link out to everybody. Uh, let's see. This question are the and I maybe this was to Janelle. Are the it says please ask her if the particulate respirators are just as effective. So I'm sure this person was asking it as you were talking, so I'm not sure what, what, what exactly was, but I guess you want to comment on how, how effective are particulate respirators? So I'm, I'm wondering if it's a true respirator that the, the questioner is asking about, or if is it, if is it just a mask? If, if it's a tight-fitting respirator, uh, the, the respirator will have uh, certain information on it, on the container that where you bought it. Um, for example, the N95, N means that it's not resistant to oil. 95 means that it's 95% effective for particulate matter that's 0.3 microns or greater in size. Um, so it really depends on the rating. And so here, let's see, you, you can kind of see some of the information that's on this particular respirator. 
Um, on this air purifying respirator, this elastomeric, it happens to have P100 oops, cartridges for it. Um, P means that it's resistant to oil for greater than eight hours. Um, and 100 doesn't quite mean 100% efficiency. It really means like 99.97%, something like that, percent of efficiency. So really take a look and see what the manufacturer has rated that particular respirator to be. I, I hope that that answers the question. I'm not sure. Sure. And they can always follow up and ask another question to, to clarify mm -hmm. if they want to. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead, George. I'm I think you're muted. There you go. Go ahead. Okay. So the K value. Yeah, that was, I found my notes. So, uh, it, so it, it's certainly from an academic standpoint, uh, the K value is much more interesting than the R value. The R value is an average. It reflects an average. So when we say an R value of 2.3, that means that on average, an infected person will spread it to another 2.3 people. And, and because it's an average, it handles everybody, all infected people, as having the same chance of spreading it to 2.3 people. In contrast, the K value is probably closer to reality, which is it recognizes, we've all heard of super spreaders, right? So uh, we know that some individuals who are positive may be more infectious, more likely to spread it than others. There is some discussion that, for example, maybe small children don't spread it as much as adults. We know that super spreaders tend, you, you can see those events because from one case, you get a whole boatload of cases. We were talking about you know, church, uh, churches a, a second ago, and there was that famous case where one singer in a choir uh, spread it to another, I think it was like 53 people. Uh, so that tells you that not everybody spreads at the same rate right that there are some people who are more likely to spread it a lot for whatever reason characteristics and others that aren't and so the k value takes into account this variability uh, of likelihood of spreading it that goes from one infected person to another um, so it's not an easy you know it's probably not an easy number to calculate and the dispersion has to do with just what that range is from the infected person that doesn't transmit it very much to the infected person that can transmit it to a whole bunch of people. In general, the lower, another way of understanding the K value is probably the, the, the super spreaders, the people who spread it to a lot of folks are the minority. So it's like a lot of other adages in medicine, you know, it may be that, and I'm just making up these numbers, that 20% of the infected people spread 80% of the disease, okay? So the dispersion is just what that range is. So I, I think from an academic standpoint, um, it really has a lot of merit. I think from simplicity of calculation, you need to have information that we may not know to calculate that K value. And so as far as I'm aware, I don't see it regularly reported by, let's say, state agencies. They like simpler numbers. That's, that's the best I can do. All right. Thank you, George. Uh, question was, how far back does the antibody test for? Uh, well, and I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say initially, I mean, it, it's going to test for as long as the antibody is, is positive in your body. Uh, George, you want to kind of elaborate on that? Uh, how far back? Mm -hmm. You mean, okay, well, so, so we have to look at the course of 
Well, first of all, when we talk about antibodies, there are a whole lot of different antibody tests, as Tommy was saying, and they don't always measure the same thing. Probably the most sensitive antibody test is what's called the total antibody test, where it measures, you know, we make different types of antibodies in response to infections. We, have, we make what's called IgM, IgG, and even IgA. This total antibody test is the most sensitive because it just looks for any of those antibodies. Um, the one that is classically reflects past infection, you're no longer infectious, but you had it in the past, is the IgG. So the IgG value in COVID rarely appears before the first week, uh, until after the first week of the disease, and more likely two to three weeks down the road. So we know that uh, it will appear in, in most people who have had the infection, we also know that you know whether it disappears over time is some matter of debate. There have been cases where it has disappeared. There have been cases where the strength of the response is greatest in those people who have had a severe COVID infection, maybe even were on a ventilator and sick, but they recovered and they tend to have a, a, a more solid uh, antibody response. There is some evidence that that antibody lasts for at least five months, but there are also problems with that. Uh, we, we're not sure that uh, having an antibody is synonymous with saying you are immune. And likewise, we're not sure that when antibodies disappear, that that necessarily means that you've lost that immunity. We have other diseases, other viral diseases like hepatitis B, where people that get vaccinated for hepatitis B after about five years, 50% of the folks lose their antibodies if you test for them, but they don't lose their immunity. So we don't really know with COVID right now. Thanks, George. A follow-up question from one of our colleagues here in Houston, a safety colleague. He, he says, you know, one of the sites that they're working at does the does the the quick blood test. I'm assuming it's an antibody test, you know, a, a quick antibody test. Getting the results within 15 minutes and then allowing the employees to go into work based on that test. What do we think about that? Uh, and I'll I'll start it out by by saying I, the, the CDC is specifically specifically come out and said, do not use the antibody testing for, uh, you know, a hall pass to get you into work because it's just not made to do that. If the test is negative for antibodies, it does not mean that you're not infected right then. If it's positive for antibodies, we don't know if that means that you can't get infected again tomorrow. So there's just a lot of, it's not really meant for that purpose. So I get it there at the beginning of this pandemic, that was one of the first tests that came out. It's a quick test, it's easy. You can do it on hundreds and thousands of people quickly, but it, it, what we know now is that's not the best test to screen employees for in, in, in you know, being infected. All right, next question was, says Dr. Rios mentioned, cloth masks are about 50% effective protecting yourself. What is a best estimate of percentage of protection for others from, from your wearing of the cloth mask? It, it, that depends. Uh, so for example, this one, this, this is a homemade mask that has two layers. So this is gonna be much more efficient at blocking um, particles that I exhale um, than one that just has one layer. Uh, if I had three layers, it would be even more uh, efficient. So uh, CDC has, um, and in fact, I have it on this other computer here. Um, they have a description of the efficiency of some cloth masks uh, at 
the efficiency of blocking particles that you exhale as, as you're exhaling or talking or singing, um, as well as the efficiency of blocking particles when they are coming at you from, from another source. So this is really meant to be source control. Um, when you wear this, you are blocking uh, those particles. Um, and even the ones that you don't block, you are limiting the forward spread so that it's it's not gonna spread out as as far as if you were wearing no mask at all. So it, it I'm sorry to give a bureaucratic answer with that, but it does depend on the number of layers and how well this is fitting up against your face. You know, as, as best you can, try to mold it um, against your nose and then under uh, your chin and at the sides. Um, it just, it depends really on, on what exactly you're wearing. It's amazing, you know, to think back, you know, when we first started this pandemic and Dr. Fauci, the Surgeon General all came out and said, do not put a facial covering on. You're going to touch it. You're going to increase your spread. Do not put anything on. And and how much we've just reversed course on that and, and have learned, you know, throughout this pandemic. You're learning all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, question for me, actually, which tests, which tests test for whether a person is is still contagious or is the the best option to stick with the 14 days of 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 quarantine before they go back to work that's a great question you know cdc first came out and said before you go back to society or work you need two tests two negative tests separated by 24 hours apart well and like i talked about in my slides on the pcr test three months later those people were still testing positive so they reversed course on that and and now the recommendation is after the 14 days, you're you are presumed non-contagious, and you can be allowed back to work and and uh, into back to society unquarantined. You know, if you want to go further on that and say, well, I I want to test to know whether this person is contagious, you can do the PCR test, but the chances of that that sucker is still going to show positive after 14 days is high. You can you can do the the antigen the antigen test which is a lot less sensitive than that pcr test and will decrease that that opportunity for a for a positive test when they're when they're no longer infected but if you want to go solely by the cdc recommendations it's you know after the 14 days probably no need for a test assuming all of your symptoms are gone you don't have a fever you don't have a cough you don't you don't necessarily need to have a negative test to go back to work George. Yeah. So actually, there's a little bit of confusion between 14 days and 10 days. Yeah. It's actually after 10 days that you're no longer contagious if you have had a case of COVID. Uh, so you you have you're diagnosed with COVID. You have to wait a minimum of 10 days. And at that point in time, if you have if you're better, you don't have a fever for the last previous 24 hours. Most people will not be contagious. They can go back to work. The 14 day is actually a quarantine term. So we need to distinguish between quarantine and isolation or self-isolation. People who are who have COVID self-isolate, and people who are in quarantine, they also isolate themselves. But they're, they 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 don't have the disease. They need to wait after having been exposed. They need to wait 14 days to make sure that they don't get the disease. Mm -hmm. So it it often turns into a paradox um, because people who quarantine and may never get the disease may wind up spending more time away from the workplace. Than people who have the infection and can come back in day 10. Right. Yeah, the CDC, I, I get the question all the time on counting the days, right? This employee 
was exposed to their wife on day on you know on December first. They've been in they've been in quarantine for for you know ten days, uh, but then they they then they had to be around their wife again on the tenth day. You know, it, CDC has a great website too, and it has calendars on there, example calendars, so you can count the days. You know, and it has every scenario under the sun. If you're exposed to a family member and you can stay away from them for 14 days, then that's all you need to do. If you can't stay away from them, you have to be around them every day for those 14 days. Well, then it it adds on to those days that you have to be uh, uh, potentially quarantined. So I'd encourage you to go to the CDC website on, on website on counting those days because it it is confusing, like uh, George said. All right, next question. Is it recommended to switch your staff from a surgical mask to just a plain facial covering? If so, what are the advantages of a facial covering? Does Janelle want to jump back on and tackle that one? Or anybody on the panel? There she is. Hey, uh, so uh, the advantages and disadvantages, um, I would say the advantages of, of cloth is that it's reusable. Um, keep in mind that uh, once you wear it or an employee wears it, it needs to be washed in the hottest water you can wash it. Um, uh, and, and it is a fashion statement. Um, so I'll add that. That's one of the advantages. One of the disadvantages um, is that you have to wash it uh, from time to time. Actually, I think CDC at one point said weekly, but I, I, once I've been out in the world wearing this, I, I wash it. I have several at home. They're inexpensive now and you can buy them at Walgreens or Target. Um, uh, now, the advantages of this is that you wear it once and you just dispose of it with a disposable surgical mask. Um, and, and that's handy. I mean, it's not very pretty, but uh, it's it, it's effective um, and it's easy to just th throw it away at the end of the day. But, you know, either one, you want to handle them both carefully You never touch the inside because that's touching your face. Um, you don't touch the outside after you've worn it once, really only handle it by the loops. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're yep. pros and cons for either one. And I think I think some of that, uh, the thought of the the thought process of not having your staff wear that surgical mask probably stems from early on when those surgical masks were in high demand and low supply. So I think that is as relaxed now. At least in our area, you can walk into any Walmart or Costco and they're all on the shelf now. And so that that may have relaxed a little bit. And, you know, I'll add that in the wintertime, these are warmer. So I think cloth is just warmer. And then here in Houston, it's very hot and humid. So in the summertime, I've been wearing the disposable ones just because it's hot. Um, yeah, yeah. Comfortable. All right. Uh, next, the next question was the exact same question we just answered. So that's good. Uh, this is a question probably for Bob. And they ask, can you specify the UV band? Is it UVB, UVC? I believe it's UV, uh, UVB, U, Bravo. And I, 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 your testing, the ink's going to flake off my diploma, but I think that's like 270 nanometers or somewhere in that range there. But I, I would, um, uh, a couple of comments about UV light, that the, that the, the virus has been shown to be quite susceptible to UV light. And there's been a lot of um, companies that are selling inline uh, UV light uh, filters, for lack of a better term. Um, but as Janelle mentioned, I just caution folks that understand that these things 
it's kind of like getting a puppy. You got to walk it and worm it and feed it and all the things that go along with having a puppy. And so uh, these uh, light bulbs, they go out or uh, if they get covered in dust, it reduces the efficacy of those devices. So um, just just be aware of that. I mean, they, it's it's been shown to work. And in fact, in hospitals, they have these interesting robot devices that they push into a room and then everyone leaves and it uh, circulates a UV light around uh, the, the room to, uh, to to disinfect it. Uh, but uh, again, they, they require maintenance. And, and for that, and the reason that they leave the room in the hospital is because UV light can also be damaging to the eyes. So you have to be careful uh, and, and to the skin as well. Thanks, Bob. Uh, question on recordability. Is it an OSHA recordable with just a positive test only with nothing beyond first aid? I'll let Dave jump on, but you know it, it's only recordable if it's proven to be work-related work uh, uh, exposure and, and positive uh, test. Dave, you want to add on to that? Yeah, I've, I've provided some text on several of the questions re, regarding the reportability and recordability. Just keep in mind, that when OSHA says recordable, that means you write it down in the OSHA 300 logs, and they have their definitions as to when you record it on your OSHA 300 long. It has to be work-related and it has to require medical care beyond first aid. The question is, can you establish that the transmission was at work, therefore it being work-related? That's the key. So if you cannot establish that it was a uh, transmission within the workplace, you know, it could be anywhere. It could have been at home, it could have been in the public, it could have been at the supermarket, it could have been anywhere, then the if you can't establish that work relatedness then it's probably not needed needed to be uh, uh recorded on the osha 300 form reports according to osha that's when you notify osha in the event of a catastrophic event such as a fatality if it is a work related covid transmission death then you have to uh, notify at least osha now how they assemble their statistics. OSHA may be uh, keeping COVID cases separate than the, than all the other cases, but that's an OSHA data recording and reporting issue. Um, also, if it is a work-related and your worker does uh, um, end up in the hospital, then uh, you might need to be notifying OSHA uh, at this would be a reportable. So the key here is establishing work relatedness that it was transmitted in the workplace, like what Tommy said. Yep. And that sometimes can be very difficult. Sure, and one of our attendees, just to tack onto that, that exact uh, topic there, said that OSHA has stated that you do not need to report a hospital, COVID-19 hospitalization if it's past the 24 hour uh, exposure. And he gives the OSHA website for that. So. Uh, I guess they give you some wiggle room on on when you need to report it. Yeah, the, <laughs> when did the exposure occur? <laughs> when you start yeah. counting, that's that's the golden question. So exactly. Yeah, great great comment by that 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 attendee. Appreciate it. Uh, another OSHA. Tommy, real, real quick, uh, I, I misspoke, and my colleague here is jumping in on me, but uh, apparently it's a UVC, UV Charlie, not not Bravo. And uh, I will look up the wavelength here in a second, but uh, that, that's yeah. the one that's considered to be effective, uh, uh, most effective against uh, COVID. I didn't see Dr. Whitehead on the on the presentation. He usually jumps <laughs> all over us on this. 
on those things. Uh, and, uh, and see, one of our oh, one of our colleagues in Houston said that an OSHA official recently gave a presentation uh, and stated that COVID fatalities are not counted in their fatal incident count. That was just a statement she gave, <laughs> Dave. Yeah, they might be. Yeah, they, they, it sounds like they're probably separating out the COVID cases, COVID-related fatalities. Gotcha. I'm sure there's a lot of investigation that has to go into that, and, and they, you know, it may take weeks or months or who knows. All right. Uh, question on OSHA recording. Was he, I assume they're meaning Dave, saying we are required to report all of our positive COVID-19 cases on our log? What if we can't prove contact tracing and transmission through work? Same same response. Remember, there's a difference between recordable on your OSHA 300 and actually get, picking up the phone call and notifying OSHA. That's a reportable. A reportable is only if there's a fatality or a hospitalization, but you have to be able to determine if it's work-related, if that COVID took place at work. If you can't establish that, I would not think that uh, it would be a reportable at that particular point in time. Going to the recordables, when you write it down on the OSHA 300 form, only if you can determine that it took place, transmission took place at work, and it required medical care beyond first aid. A test is diagnostic, or it's a screening. That's not medical care, okay? That's you're treating an ailment when it's medical care. So uh, when it requires medical care, that's when you it is deemed a, a recordable case. Uh, okay, this is this is a probably a good question for George. You want to talk a little bit about what we know up until this point about the safety of the COVID vaccines? Sure. So they, uh, most of the press has, and remember, remember, everything has been reported in the press. The, the, the actual hard data that the FDA has to go through before um, uh, issuing what's called uh, emergency use authorization uh, has yet to come. They have to turn it in uh, uh, to the uh, FDA and, and as part of the packet where they require this. So they haven't talked a lot about safety. Um, but the remember the phase one and phase two studies where it's done on smaller populations did show that in general they're very well tolerated. There were some folks that had um, what we call local reactions and maybe a little bit of low-grade fever that lasted 24 to 36 hours. Um, what they've mainly highlighted, of course, is the effectiveness that they've seen less than the safety, but that's going to be an important criterion. Um, you know, for what it's worth, I, I did uh, hear this morning on, on TV, and I think, I think it was CBS, um, a couple of physicians who were also study participants in the Moderna vaccine, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, which are the two vaccines that have issued these preliminary, very exciting results of effectiveness of 90% or greater. Both of them have things in common. One of them is it's a novel, they, they both represent a novel way of, of designing and, and, and developing a vaccine. It's called, they're called mRNA or messenger RNA vaccines. Um, never been done before, but, but the, again, the safety trials at the beginning were very reassuring. 
They also have in common that it takes two doses. The reason the two doses is important when you're talking about safety is uh, I, I was hearing one of the physicians who had received the vaccine saying, and, and both of them said the first dose was very well tolerated, but one of them after the second dose sort of had a heightened response where she had um, some fever, uh, local reaction, local pain, but it went away after, but maybe even some other like fatigue or something like that. I think it was, uh, but it went away after 24 to 36 hours. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are more of these local reactions. At the end of the day, they are short-lived, and my personal opinion is they're probably worth it. Uh, it's also not uncommon for other vaccines to give you local reactions. We all know about babies and them having fevers after a vaccine, or even the flu shot can give you sometimes local reactions, and we still take it. Good question. Good answer. <laughs> Question, how long does someone show immunity from catching COVID-19? George, you wanna tackle that one? We don't know. What, okay, and I can say it another way. Um, you know, I agree with, with Dr. Fauci on this. He says virtually 100% of people who have had a confirmed COVID-19 uh, infection have immunity. That's not, they have it, Well, we just don't know how long it lasts. And, and that is the real question. And one of the reasons we don't know how long it lasts is it, we haven't been around it long enough. Even these, these trials that are on Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, one of the important questions is, okay, it's effective, but you've only been following this for a couple of months. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job of enrolling tens of thousands of people. And now most of those have had their two doses. But if you if you allow, you know, they all, they both start, started on their study on July 27th, I believe, and they both require two doses. One is at three weeks, the other one is at four weeks, and I forget which is which. So you got to factor that in, and then you got to factor in enough waiting time to make sure that, um, you know, you followed them long enough to be able to say whether they're effective or not. Well, we know that in the short term they're effective, but we don't know if with more months of study that effectiveness is going to stay hopefully it will, or whether it's going to start to wane. Remember that there are other vaccines that we take every year because the immunity isn't forever, like the flu shot. Uh, speaking of flu, there was a question about um, about the flu. It, seem, it seems that we are not seeing as much in the way of reported flu cases. Uh, is there, do, we, do we think we're counting flu as COVID and vice versa? Is that, do we think that's ever going to start getting uh, mixed up? It certainly can get mixed up. Uh, I don't think we are getting it mixed up yet. So we have to look at, um, and I think we talked about this in September when we offered this as well. So we have to, look, you know, typically every year to decide how bad, well, first of all, to decide what type of flu shot we need to, to make, because we make it every year, uh, and how, long, how effective that vaccine is. We have to look at countries in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, like Australia, uh, because they their winter is our summer and vice versa, right? So by the time the flu gets to the U.S., they've already experienced their flu and they've already given their flu shots and they know uh, how effective it is. Well, you, you protect from the flu the same way that you protect from COVID. You stay away from people who are sick. You can wear a mask. Uh, and they did, because they were doing it for COVID, the thing in Australia that they saw is that the flu numbers, the numbers of cases dropped dramatically about 70%. So they're seeing 70% fewer cases in their flu season than in other years. 
and that's great. It probably means that the measures that you take for COVID will also protect against the flu. Unfortunately, I guess, in, in quotation marks, it hasn't allowed them to tell us how effective this year's flu shot is because they don't have enough cases of flu to be able to, you know, to prove it statistically, which is probably a good problem to have. Um, in our area, you know, typically by November, we start seeing cases of flu in the community, at least in, in our location here in Houston. I've, I've been checking every day and we still do not have flu. Uh, having said that, when the flu arrives, and it will arrive, and, and, and probably we will not see as dramatic a drop as in Australia because the measures that were implemented in Australia were very, very strict in terms of shutdowns of entire cities, et cetera, for COVID. Uh, we probably won't see that, but we'll probably see fewer cases than in a regular year. And many of the symptoms of the flu overlap with symptoms of COVID. There are important differences as well. So it's gonna be a challenge. So most of the hospitals and, and health centers that, that we work with here are already making algorithms for deciding when should you test for flu, when should you test for COVID, when shouldn't you test for either, or when should you test for both? All right, thank you. Question on KN95 masks versus N95 masks. Are they just as effective? Uh, we, we were actually grappling with this issue here at the Health Science Center because there was a shortage of uh, N95s. The KN95 is a uh, designation out of uh, China, I believe. Um, and we've had um, some, some degree of difficulty achieving um, good fit for fit testing uh, but they certainly can be so suitable as a masking uh, device. So I can tell you that with the decision made here for the front facing healthcare providers, we are uh, targeting the N95s and the PAPRs to them. Uh, and then if we run into a shortage, we do have a big large supply of KN95s, but they're being used for, for ancillary personnel, uh, more as a masking uh, device. Janelle, you want to weigh in on that or if you actually have one there yeah <laughs> yes and i accidentally uh turned off my camera um and we'll come back on now uh so here goes um this is a kn9 or a, yeah kn95 which is just a chinese designation n r and p that's a, a designation from niosh yeah excellent any evidence of animal transmission to humans particularly domestic animals i know there was some articles at the beginning of the pandemic that a tiger tested positive for covid and and what does that mean in any further updates on domestic animals carrying this virus and spreading it to humans not that i'm aware of there is some evidence of humans transmitting it to to animals right but not the other way around yep uh, are there any changes to the required stay-at-home time frame from the CDC if a person tests positive from COVID-19? Um, no. Uh, so this, this sort of covers something we addressed earlier about the return to work criteria, right? And the period of contagious. Well, actually, I take that back. There is a slight change. So. Um, in most places, we're using this symptom-based, time-based criteria for return to work, which is people who are otherwise healthy, who had an uncomplicated COVID infection, um, will typically no longer be contagious after day 10. So we use that as our minimum number of days that you should be away from work while you have a case of COVID. And then at that point, when day 10 comes around, 
we ask if they've been without a fever and if they've been free of symptoms or at least markedly improved for the previous 24 hours. Um, it's important, and if they have been, then they can go back to work. It's important to understand these are minimum criteria. There are a lot of people that at day 10 are not ready to go back to work. And it's mm -hmm. not because they're contagious, it's because they're still washed out. We've heard of these long haulers, but even without getting into the long haulers, there are some people that are just drained for many, many days, and they shouldn't go back to work until they feel well enough to go back to work. So 10 days is the thing. But there have been some studies of individuals who have pre-existing conditions uh, where they have been uh, severely immune suppressed, either because they have a disease, an immunological disease that depresses their immunity, or because they are on treatment with immunosuppressive agents such as high doses of steroids chronically, um, or people who have had a severe episode of, uh, of uh, COVID that landed them in the hospital and in the ICU, some of those folks may continue to be contagious for a few more days after the day 10, like uh, uh, until about day 15. And so the studies that CDC has cited says even in those cases, about 95% of people by day 15 are no longer contagious and it's allowing for these special groups. And so what they recommend is if you have somebody that has these characteristics, they're immune suppressed, uh, or they had a very severe reaction, might extend that return to work period to 20 days. So that is the slight change in the last month or so, a month and a half. Sure. Uh, this is a, a great question, you know, and, and the CDC does have that separate guideline for critical infrastructure workers to say, if you have a critical worker that thinks they were exposed or maybe knows they were exposed to somebody and you really need to get them back to work, then they the CDC says, well, you can't let them back to work as long as they wear a facial covering the entire time, they try to social distance, they keep their hands washed. Uh, and so the question asker uh, says, knowing that, do we have any data to show that that has caused an increase in transmission in the workforce? So um, we have the opposite. Well, so, so actually, that's a fragmented question. So uh, you probably saw in the news that some uh, th that there was a nurses union, I believe, in one of the northern states. I can't remember if it was Michigan or, or Minnesota or Wisconsin, where they are so short-staffed right now uh, that they need to make uh, to 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 have more healthcare workers come in. And CDC does have a provision where even people who are currently infected, if they have mild infection, or they're a positive, but the, uh, they have a positive test, but they are asymptomatic. When the situation is really stressed, they can be allowed to go back to work, taking all these precautions that Tommy just just meant, uh, mentioned. The the nurses union pushed back on that. I don't know where it is, but a couple of days ago they were saying, "No way, they're not doing that." Now, uh, what there is good evidence for is that um, the measures that hospitals are taking now, before they get overrun. And because PPE is now generally widely available, they work. There have been articles that show that, uh, in fact, the risk of transmission in hospitals when you have a COVID positive patient transmitting it to other coworkers has dropped dramatically. More often what happens is that somebody gets infected outside the hospital. We tend to view the hospital as the high risk setting, but the data is showing that probably the high risk setting right now in the midst of the surge is the community. They get it there and then they come to work 
and they transmit it to other coworkers. But even in those cases, because universal masking is so is being well, done so well in, in, in hospital settings and healthcare settings, it doesn't propagate to a lot of folks. Usually it's not gonna happen because they're wearing their masks. It's gonna be happening in a scenario that they don't think about was like when they go to a lunchroom or a break room and they take off their mask and talk to, to a friend at a close distance. So breaches in PPE rather than lack of effectiveness of PPE. The, the, the data are so good showing that what hospitals are doing when, they, when they're not being overrun, it's so good that we should be the model for the rest of society in terms of how to, to, to protect ourselves. Excellent. I think we're down to our last minute. I'm going to try to squeeze in three questions. I'm going to combine two of them. And maybe this is a question for Christina. Can you talk a little bit about how long the virus lives on surfaces such as food and clothing? Yes, thank you. Yeah, there's been much more recent studies looking at various types of services. And, and one article um, that came out about a month ago in ABC World News Tonight highlighted it. Those investigators, um, I wish I remembered their names, they looked at various types of cloth materials. They also cited a study that looked at uh, N95 masks. They looked at things like cotton. And they also looked at vinyl and other materials that might be used to make things like cell phones and other services. They found that factors, and Dr. Emery alluded to some of this, you know, such as sunlight, UV, um, plays a role in the survivability of the, of the virus, um, temperature, humidity. So different conditions can, can influence um, the ability of, of the virus to survive. This particular study cited another study that found um, SARS-CoV-2 to, to survive on the outside of an N95 mask for up to 21 days at room temperature. And again, that's without any, any intervention. So it does depend upon the environmental conditions, but I think really the take home message is that this virus is, is just again, relatively unstable from other viruses that we normally encounter each year that can be seasonal like norovirus and rotavirus. Um, so we just need to make sure that we, we disinfect or at the very least clean with soap and water the frequently touched surfaces. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to squeeze in one more. I know we're one minute over, but George, do you want to, did you see the article about the interferon and, and they think that's why more that people either with, with that issue or without that issue are more susceptible to, uh, I think it was death. It was a study on interferon. Actually, I haven't. Okay. I, ju I just saw it come across, I think, yesterday. Somebody yeah. asked a comment on it, but we'll I'll make sure that I send that to George so he can look at it and then make a comment. So I, I promise you there's about 10 questions we did not get to. We will answer those in written format for you and disseminate that to the entire group of all the attendees. So uh, we thank you for joining us. This was... Uh, in my opinion, one of the, the best ones. There you go. <laughs> Wine or beer. There you are both, right? <laughs> because I speak to these guys every year. They give me a stack of these coupons. So I'm sure they're all the Charlotte people are chuckling because I noticed that they were just sitting. Uh, maybe you can mail it in and, and get something back. Uh, <laughs> but we thank everybody for being on today. I, when I looked at uh, one of our peaks, we had over 310 attendees today. So a great session. We appreciate everybody's uh, attendance and Appreciate all the panel's uh, expertise and guidance. Okay, thank you. Thank you for everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.